0: You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, 17-year-old Julianne Capecki was flying on Christmas Eve in 1971 with her mom and about 90 other passengers when lightning struck their plane and caused massive structural failure. And so little 17-year-old Julianne remembers being thrown clear from the plane, and she remembers looking down past her little white dress and her high-heeled shoes down at the Peruvian jungle below and commenting that the trees looked like cauliflower. And then she passed out. And she woke up, still strapped to her chair, alone in a jungle, beat up, cut and bruised, broken collarbone. But other than that, she was unharmed. And so she spent about a day hiding under the chair from the rain and then she realized I'm in this jungle canopy. I don't think any airplane's going to find me. No helicopter's going to find me. I'm alone. They probably don't think I'm alive. And so in the midst of that extraordinarily disorienting experience, she just looked around and said, I don't know where I am. I don't know what country I'm in. But I remember two things my father said to me. He said, downhill leads to water, and water leads to people. And so in the middle of a disorienting moment, she said, I'm just gonna be guided by those principles. And so she started to walk downhill. And she walked, and sure enough, found water, found the course of a river, walked along this river, and in 11 days, she walked out of that jungle into uh, civilization. There was about a dozen people who had landed together in a different space, that stayed in that spot and died. But little 17-year-old Julianne lived, roaming through the wilderness in her high-heeled shoes. How did she do it? Because in the midst of a problematic moment, she had two principles to navigate by. Now, why do I say that? Because I think we can all be honest that this year's been a little bit disorienting little bit difficult. I don't know where I, I don't even know what continent I'm in. Where are we right now in a culture? There's been so much that's happened to us. Pandemics are new for many of us. So much racial and political tension. Uh, Afghanistan, happy, all kinds of uncertainty in our lives. And we're looking and saying, are we in a major historic moment in history? Is this a pivotal moment for America? And the truth is, it's hard to know in a moment if you're in a major historical turning point you don't have the perspective when you're in the midst of it. This could be a major turning point for a country or something catastrophic can happen in a month from now and everything that happened thus far in your life will be skipped by your children's history books. History books have no problem jumping over 50 or 100 years gaps. You have no idea if your Anne Frank and your journal will be a turning point for our understanding. Or if everything we do will be maybe a footnote at the bottom of a history book, we have no idea and we can't know because our vision's limited under the canopy, which is a distressing thing. So then where do I go? What do I do? You don't have a map. You don't know where you are, but we have guiding principles from our father that can lead us safely home. We do. And I know the survivalists in the room might have commentary on Julianne's, well, technically water, oh, stop, all right? Hers might have been insufficient, but ours are not. We have the guiding principle from a king who made it all, and he's asking us to trust him. And that's really the Sermon on the Mount, It's Jesus Christ looking at us and saying, I'm a king, and I'm building a kingdom, and here's here's what my community is meant to be about. Here's our cause, and here's our culture. Here's our vision. Here's our values. Here's where I'm calling you, and here's who we're going to be along the way. So in the midst of a certain day, he's showing us, even though I don't know what's happening and what it all means, I know how I can act, because I have guiding principles from the king. And so we're wrapping up the sermon. And like I said, we got to this end part and there's a lot going on in here. Every one of these little moments deserves its own sermon, but we don't have time for that. So we're going to race over all these. But if I can give you broad strokes over it, there's a fascinating challenge that John, the gospel writer of John, put in front of his own life, which was how do you summarize Jesus, which is a very hard thing to do. Uh, I remember in seminary, we had a class where they said, your final assignment is to define God I'm like, wait, what? Like, that is actually a really overwhelming thing to say. Uh, And so summarize Jesus. That's a hard thing to do. And yet John, over and over again, just kept arriving at he was full of grace and he was full of truth. Two things we tend to think are polar opposites beautifully commingle in this man full of grace, full of truth. And I think what you're going to see as Jesus is unpacking his manifesto of the kingdom in the sermon, he's going to say, who are we? We are a people of grace, and we are a people of truth. And we're going to see that. And this first half of the sermon, there's a few points on how to be people of grace. He's going to unpack how we do it as we journey through the wild together. And then he's going to talk about how we are people who cling to truth. So as we talk about the reality that we're people of grace, he starts with the antithesis, and he says, we are not going to be harshly critical. Amen? We are not going to be harshly critical as a community. Judge not that you not be judged, is what he said. Now, he's not in saying that dismissing law courts, the scripture upholds the rule of law in culture, and he's not saying we aren't discerning about the morality of people's words and deeds. He's going to assess people later and call them some of them dogs and pigs and some of them ravenous wolves. Like, he, he's telling us, watch what people say and do and make distinctions on whether or not you should trust them and do what they say or interact with them in certain ways. So he's not saying, hey, get rid of moral judgment or your discerning capacities. So he's not saying, don't be, use your judgment. He's saying, don't be judgmental. And there's a difference. And it's interesting, the apostle Paul and and James, Jesus' brother, unpack this both in different letters of theirs. Romans 14, Paul commenting on Jesus' words here says, why do you pass judgment on your brothers or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Or James says, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? So notice the synonyms they use. When they're talking about judging your brother, Paul says, we don't despise them. And James says, we don't speak evil against them. That's what being judgmental means. As the Christian culture moves through life, we don't despise and speak evil to each other. Our aim and our words to one another are never destructive, they're always constructive. We don't cut people down, we build them up. Right? Uh, John Stott says we are not censorious which is a word no one uses except John Stott, but I love the way he defines it. He says, the censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. They put the worst possible construction on others' motives and are ungenerous towards their mistakes, i.e. see Twitter or Facebook or all of social media, right? This is basically Jesus' commentary on the way we comment on each other. We're not meant to be critics, and the reason why he says it, and, and all of them kind of comment on it, is because you're not the judge. You're actually among the judged. That's the idea. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. The measure you use will be measured to you. You're not the judge, There's a, and he's not inviting you to help him. It would be like a third grader trying to help run the class with the teacher, <laughs> No, you're not qualified to do this. You're a third grader. You have nothing to teach these other third graders. Sit back down. I got this. But when we judge and criticize each other and are harsh, it's like us looking at Jesus and saying, scoot over. Get off that throne. Let me take over. No, yes, no. And he's like, "Amen." you don't have the qualifications to do this because you don't know what's going on in that person's life you haven't seen the progress they're on, you don't see the hardships they're processing, you don't know my intent of how I'm working with them, so slow your roll way down on judging other people, because you're not qualified to do it, right? And in fact, you're actually among the judged. You need to take a hard look at you. And that's where the rest of this text goes, right? And incidentally, culturally, can I just comment on us, we are being groomed to be nitpickers, right? I mean, that's our culture today, right? That, that we just get online and rage against anyone we disagree with. And, and there's a convenience to that because it lets us feel righteousness when we see wrongs. So I can point out how wrong that is. And you're a hypocrite and how hypocritical that side is. And look at that camp, the way they do this. And that guy said that, but look what he did. And we love to point that out because we feel righteous without any penitence. So I can feel righteous without having to look at my own heart. Because if I examine myself, I'm going to see my own flaws and then I'm going to have to mourn them and weep and repent and make some hard life choices. What a hassle. It's easier (laughs) to just point out your flaws and judge those and then kind of feel good about myself. And Jesus is saying, that's not going to work great for you because you're still a mess. And so it's interesting. There was um, on Twitter a few months ago, maybe years ago. I don't know. Time has done weird things to me. But Somebody posted this quiz, and it was all the Chris's in Hollywood, Chris Pine and Chris Hemsworth and Chris Evans and Chris Pratt, and they weren't asking, who's your favorite? It said, which one has to go? (laughs) And people gleefully chose who's the worst, and Chris Pratt won the worst, and so thousands and thousands of comments from strangers start to pour in on why he's the worst and they made assumptions about his beliefs and assumptions about his politics and judged and condemned him, and it was delicious. It's so fun to judge people. And then his friends that know him began to speak up. And Robert Downey Jr.'s was my favorite Iron Man kids. Said this. What a world. The sinless are casting stones at my brother Chris Pratt. Interesting how he just adopts Christian imagery, right? Right. And then he defines Chris Pratt, a real Christian who lives by principle, has never demonstrated anything but positivity and gratitude, and just married into a family that makes space for civil discourse and insists on service as their highest value. He says, if you take issue with Chris, I've got a novel idea. Delete your social media account, sit with your own defects of character, work on those, then celebrate your humanness. And that's such a great piece of advice that he just ripped off from Jesus, right? I mean, because Jesus says all that critical energy, redirect, so stop the speck searching. And you always wonder, did Jesus ever preach with a sense of humor? We're used to this, when he was like, you're looking for specks in people's eyes and you've got a tree! Like, that's, that's funny. And he's just like, so deal with the tree! The assumption there, can I just say this about us, family, as the believers of Jesus, the assumption there is we're not perfect. The assumption is there's lumber all over this room, specks and logs all over the place. So people that want to deconstruct Christianity, where well, there's a bunch of hypocrites in there. Yes, there are, and so are you well, these people are such a hassle. Have you ever hung out with you? Like, we're all a hassle. We're all a mess. And yet Jesus is building a community that says, you know what, but let's not be a community that that dismisses and criticizes and destroys each other. Let's admit we all got specks and logs everywhere. And let's start not with harsh criticism, but self-reflection. Let's start there. Where can I get better? What can I do? What would happen if you really did maybe delete social media for Sabbath? and just not even hear the criticism anymore. And some of you are like, Ben, I don't know what I would do with the silence, and it terrifies me. Exactly. What you might be forced to deal with is you. And that's a scary thing. And yet, as you deal with you, here's what I love that he does. He gives us a warning about not throwing your prizes to pigs and dogs, which sounds crazy, but he's just saying, hey, we're going to try to help each other. I move the log so I can get to your speck. This, this isn't that like, let everyone do whatever, it's their story. Like, no, I'm supposed to help you. But I'm just supposed to deal with me first, but there'll be some people, when you try to help them, they'll bite you. And he says, then you just, you just back away. And you go, okay, there's some people, you just got to give them space, they're not ready. It's basically that. But the idea here is he says, you know what? Rather than criticism, we're going for introspection. And when we go for introspection, we start to see our own defects of character. We start to see the logs in our own lives and say, maybe I don't need to just keep attacking that party and attacking that group and attacking those people and attacking that hypocrite. Maybe I just need to improve me. And when you do that, I love the way C.S. Lewis said. He said, a proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can never see that there's something above you. But when you stop looking down at other people and look inward, that's when it gets scary. Oh, man, I'm a mess. Actually, a lot of what I hate in them, I see in me. He says, and that will drive you to your knees. And then what I love about that is Jesus pivots instantly and says, so ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door's open. And he starts talking about prayer, but he doesn't tell us how to pray. He did that earlier. Now he's giving you the position of God's character when you pray. He said, hey, you're going to get to the floor and realize your own shortcomings, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to instantly think, but my God is a good dad. And when I come to him, he's not going to hurt me. He's not going to judge me. He's not going to condemn me. He's not going to see my hunger and start throwing stones. He's not going to see my longing and start throwing me snakes. He said, he's going to be gracious to me and kind. And I think Jesus reminds us of that there because when we analyze our own shortcomings, that's when we'll feel the most unworthy. So he reminds us. Hey, we are not harsh critics, but we are humbly confident. We're humble because we realize we're sinners, but we're confident because we have a Father who loves us. So we see our own sin, and then we come before a gracious God, and we ask, and we seek, and we knock, we pursue. What would happen if you put social media away and replaced that time with prayer? Just imagine some of you are like, I have no idea. I don't know either, try it. Maybe a life will change. And an apartment, and a neighborhood, and a city, and a world, maybe. It's worth a shot. And so he says, you ask him, and you seek him, and you knock, and what I love about that is, is those are a lot of verbs. You got to ask God and seek God. And it feels like, am I supposed to chase him like I'm desperate? And he says, no, he's like a father. He gives you this father imagery. And the idea there is not that we're desperately begging God to move because he might not, it's the confidence of a child. Uh, when, when my son wants a snack, he says, Mom, can I have a snack? And if he doesn't hear her, he seeks. She's in here. Where is she? Where is she? And if he can't see her and her door's shut, he starts knocking. Now, is that out of desperation? There's no mommy here. Maybe there's no mommy. Maybe this whole mommy thing's a construct and a lie. Like, what is going on? And, uh, or maybe if I do find her, she's going to never feed me, and I'm going to starve, and I'm going to die. I don't be alone. I'll die alone. No. The Asking and seeking and confidence isn't desperate fear. It's confidence. I'm seeking mommy because there is a mommy. And I'm going to persist in that because I know her heart. She is inclined to give me a snack. And so if I keep moving towards her, I'm going to get one. And so for us, he says, hey, rather than being harsh critics, let's be humble. Let's work on our own character defects. And then when we do that, let's help each other. But then as we're humble, let's be humbly confident. That's the beautiful posture of the Christian people. How do we handle that anxious day? We are humble and confident. I know I'm a mess, but I know He loves me. I know I'm broken, but I know He's a healer. I know I'm an orphan, but He is an adopter and a father, so I'm going to Him. That's the Christian posture. And it's from that place that He just moves to so, so He connects it verbally so. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them, because that's the whole law and the prophets. He says, so as we journey together, we're not going to harshly criticize, but we're going to humbly and confidently come to the Lord and ask for his grace. And then after we do that, we have the power to be gracious. That's the Christian rhythm. That's the rhythm of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they'll be filled. I come to God with empty hands. He fills me, and then I bless you. I'm not going to criticize and condemn you, but I come to God humbly and confidently and then i have a resource to love you and, and what i love is he gives here what's called the golden rule and it actually existed all through the ancient world so many different people said it but they all say it in a negative bent in the sense of they say don't do to others things that you don't want them to do to you almost everywhere it's stated it's stated that way from confucius to the stoics to Uh, Jewish literature, don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you, which is good advice. We give that advice in our home all the time. Do you want your sister to hit you? No, then don't hit her. It's simple, right? Uh, So we do that. Jesus pivots it, though, to the positive. The only guy that did that. Not only don't do things you don't want done to you, he says do things to others that you wish they would do for you. So um, my children will be aware of my shortcomings. They probably are already now, but they lack some of the maturity to understand them. But when they get into their late teens and 20s, daddy's flaws will suddenly become way more clear. And they'll have a choice in that moment. They can harden their heart against my failures in my role as a father and condemn me and dismiss me for those things. Or they can say, yeah, my, my dad failed in some categories because every human does. And here's where I failed too. And they can come share it with me. And as we confess logs and specs, we can weep and grieve over sin together. And then we can do for each other what we would hope someone would do for us. Be gentle, be gracious, and be kind. And I don't know what your flaws are, but I guarantee you, you don't want me to list them off out here and for us to all run you out. So let's not do that out in the culture. Let's pray more than we persecute people. Let's be people who say, I'm going to draw into grace and then I'm going to extend out grace because that's what we want. We went to a skate park yesterday, me and my three kids. None of us really skateboard. So... uh, this was our first run, okay? And there were a lot of people out there doing tricks, jumping stuff. I think the Olympics got them fired up. There's people like, yeah, gnarly, like going for stuff. And we're out there like, whoa, you know? And you're like, okay, we're in the way a bit. And I was feeling that, like we are ripe for condemnation, right? Like I would easily understand the guys that were like, hang on a second, this will take a minute and just have like a five-minute eye roll because we were a mess out there. And what was awesome was there were all these like kids out there with like uncanny skating ability. I mean, kids that just like flipping off of stuff. and like, good night. And, and before our hour there was done, every single one of them came up to my kids and introduced themselves, asked how they were doing, said, hey, have you been to this part yet? This part's cool. Hey, let me show you this part. And they're like, I don't know how to do that. I'm like, no, that's okay, I'll show you. And they were so kind and generous. They, they were exactly how you would wish they would be. And I thought, man, Lord Jesus, let your church be as cool as these skater dudes. <laughs> right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If all the criticism stayed out there, but when we came in here, someone's coming in and they know like I shouldn't be in church, am I gonna burst into flames? You're like, no, nah, man, you are a mess, but not more than me, but hey, let's get in here and let's get healed. Let's have the grace of a father feed us, and then let's be a source of grace to the world, and let's be something else. Let's just be something else in the culture, right? I love the way John Stott said it. He said, If we put ourselves sensitively in the place of the other person and wish for him what we would wish for ourselves, we would never be mean. We would always be gracious, never harsh, always understanding, never cruel, always kind. That's a good thing to be. We are the people of grace. And yet, many people take that and go, so we're gracious, so you do you. Just be yourself, and it's whatever, man. And Jesus doesn't do that. He says we are the people of grace and the people of truth. And and we're all sort of predisposed. Some of us love the grace Jesus, and some of us, when someone preaches about the grace Jesus, you're like, yeah, but what about sin and repent? And we we like the truth Jesus, and the truth is he's the same Jesus. And in the same sermon, he says, you have to bring together grace and truth. You're a mess, but God loves you and wants to provide for you. And so let me be honest with you about the world. And as Jesus wraps out his sermon, he shifts to the truth. And he does it with warnings, four warnings that all present forks in the road. That's how it is. Two paths, two trees, two claims, two buildings. You're going to have to choose upon facing me. And he talks about the exclusivity of his truth. And so the reality is we are the people of grace and we are the people of truth. And as he talks about truth, he says it in verse 13, enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. He says, hey, here's the reality, there's two paths. He said one of them's going to be really broad, Whatever you believe fits on this path. It's really wide. Whatever baggage you want to bring, bring it. You got some pride, some self absorption, some vanity. There's plenty of room here. And so he says, This road is wide. You believe whatever you want about how the world works, anything you go. And he said, That's a wide, broad, easy road, but in the end, it leads to death. He said, But there's a different gate that's hard and it's narrow. And it's narrow, meaning there's so much of you you gotta leave behind. Jesus, says, there's parts of you that they just don't have any place in the world I made anymore. You're beautiful because God made you in His image, but you're broken. And so some of these broken, sad things, the defiance and the arrogance and the self absorption, the critical spirit, that, that, that all stays back here. This road can't fit that nonsense. And it's a narrow road here that we walk, it, it won't be where the crowd goes. And yet, as we go, we will be counter-cultural. And it will be hard, meaning a lot of your neighbors will not understand and people will judge you, but it leads to life. And it's interesting, some people hear this and they go, man, that kind of exclusivity, Ben, that's just harsh. I listened to a podcast the other day about a, a a deconstructionist, a guy deconstructing his faith. And he said, I just think we have to ask the question, is offering the grace of Jesus or else you go to hell, is that narrative harmful? And he posed it as a question, is that narrative harmful? And my answer is no, if it's true. Yeah, right. Come on. It's harmful if it's not true, yeah. but if it's true, it's a good thing. Yeah. So I've sat in the hospital with an alcoholic who's dying and I watched a doctor walk in and say to him, Do you want to live? He said, your kidneys are failing. Your body's filled with toxins. Stop drinking and live. Keep drinking and die. That's hard. That's narrow. He didn't offer him alternate beverages. I mean, it was like it was very cold-hearted in some ways. But was it harmful? No. He was trying to save his life. This was me saying, no, if you really are sick, if you really are hurting, if that's really how the world works, if that really is where reality is, then then, man, I need to help you get to a physician that'll heal you. If the brokenness we see in the world and the sin we see that just keeps erupting is really killing us, what's the cure? And Jesus says, I have it. Now, I just gotta be a hard truth. It's not whatever works for you. There's, There's some medicines that heal and some don't. There's some that will protect you and some won't. And and there's realities here that we can't uh, vote out of reality. They just are. And and to deny that is to be unloving. Remember what the movie Tombstone taught us. What happened? Doc Holliday uh, at one point starts coughing up blood after a night of poker. Doctor comes to him and tells him, Your disease is so advanced, you've coughed up a significant percentage of your lung tissue. You have to change your life. You have to change your hard partying. You have to change your marital relations with the woman you're with. And he didn't like that message. He said, get out of my sight. And then when he left, as Doc thought about it, he looked at his girl, Kate, and he said, Kate, I think we need to talk about the nature of our relationship. And she lit a cigarette and put it in his mouth and said, I've been good to you. Started to pet him. We're going to be fine. We're not changing anything. And he says, you are a good woman. And then she left. And then he said, or you might be the antichrist. (laughs) because all this, oh, you're fine. It's whatever. Do whatever you want. It's a, there's no consequences. You just go. It's easy. It's broad. It's, he's like, actually, you're, you're killing me. I didn't like what he had to say, but he was trying to save me. I liked what you're trying to say, but you're killing me, and Jesus is not trying to be cruel here. Jesus is not trying to be judgmental. Jesus is going to give his life for this, so Jesus isn't trying to get rich off us or something. Jesus is going to Give up all his possessions and die watching his last piece of clothing be gambled off. And he's going to do that on purpose for us. So this isn't a deception game. This is him saying the sin we see in the news and the sin we see in us is serious. And, and it's, it's a function of love to tell you there's a way to live. And the way to live is narrow, and, and he calls us to beware of false prophets in the midst of that who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I love that he, he tells us, hey, as we start this community, there's going to be people in here, and they look like us, and they sound like us, and they talk like us, and, but they're not us, and, and actually their, their presence is not just damaging, it's deception, deceptive and damaging. And then he says, but the only way you're going to know them is like a tree produces fruit. You'll see on the back end the product of their life and it will be destructive but the problem is fruit growth takes time and so so that means damaging elements will linger in the culture for a while so so are there preachers and teachers that kind of sound like us dress like us look like us do like us quote verses but then they twist and distort them so that it hurts you and harms you and is damaging to a community all the time and, and you usually don't know till after there's been some fruit and some damage and some things grew that have to be cut down and so he warns us about that, and, and we can go on and on about this, and probably should, there probably should be like a whole uh, sermon on false teachers and how to recognize them. Wouldn't that be a fun book? Who would buy that? But um, he says at the end of the day, how do you know someone who's teaching what's false? He says, you watch, you watch the fruit it produces. And what he's saying there is, when you, when you trust my truth, uh, it leads to a different kind of life. And so if I could flip it to the positive he says a good tree bears good fruit what he's saying about the christians is we're people who have received grace and believe the truth and both are lived out in our lives we have a consistency of life and message we don't peddle unapplied truth what what the world disrespects so much today is hypocrisy you say one thing but you live another and he says for us god made us a good tree so we bear good fruit. We have a message of, of kindness and love and grace and truth, and that leads us to be kind and gracious and loving and truthful. So people need to see that consistency. And Jesus calls falsehood here, not just they distorting the text, but it's their, the content of their message, their character, and their influence on the community is divisive and ugly and cruel. And if you watch your life and see what comes out of the back end, if it's all chaos, you need to change the inputs. And he says, hey, there needs to be a change in heart and in life, and then there'll be a change in activity. Uh, and I love the imagery he uses there of a tree because you don't become an apple tree by producing apples. You know that, right? It's not how it works. There's not a fir tree out there like, you know, I'm trying to get in the apple game, so uh, I'm kind of working on growing apples, and then, you know, once you hit a certain apple production, you become an apple tree, and it's really sort of exciting. That's not how it works. You're made an apple tree by God, and you produce apples. And it's the same with us. You don't earn your way into the kingdom of God. That's not the narrow way. In the same way, producing apples doesn't make you an apple tree. You, you trust in him, the poor in spirit, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he says, I change you. He says, and then we love our enemies. Why? Because our Father causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and the sun to shine on the righteous and the evil, because God loves his enemies right? We're generous. Why? Because God's generous. Uh, So so we look like him because he changed us, And so we hold on to a truth uh, that changed others because it changes us. We believe that. And so we live like that. And there's a consistency in our message. We got a message uh, from a friend the other day that um, watching this crisis unfold in Afghanistan we were talking about it and she was talking about praying over the people she sees and we've all seen those photos of people in the plains and she said, I'm just praying for them. Like, where are they going to go in life? What's going to happen to them? And she said, I'm praying for resilience for them. I'm praying for a place to land and be safe. I'm praying for God to preserve life, that not, there's not a loss of life. And she said, and then I'm praying that they would come and know the grace and kindness of Jesus. And she said, there was a moment in the middle of praying all that, I just started to wonder, like, does this even make a difference? And... Then she told us, but I remember and had some clarity in memories that I honestly forgot I had clarity on of when my family was fleeing war in Bosnia. She said, I was a refugee as a child. She said, I remember God, or my, my mom taking me and putting me in a stranger's lap to make sure I could get on a plane. She said, I remember looking to my brother for comfort because nothing else was familiar. She said, I remember landing in a country and having to learn the language and I remember the Christians being nice to me, and I remember putting my faith in Jesus. And she served with us in our ministry for years. And she said, so when I started to feel hopeless, she said it struck me, 27 years ago, somebody somewhere was doing this for me. Somebody was on their knees praying for God to help me, and he did. And do I understand all the mechanics of it? No, it's so hard to get perspective in the days like this, but we have principles to guide by. I know that I'm a mess and I'm broken. There's logs sticking out of my eyes. But I know I have a gracious father who wants to take care of me, so I come humbly to him. And then when I do, I become a force of good in the world, calling people to know him, praying earnestly that, that they will be a part of the kingdom he's building because I want them to know him. And then I'm going to see a consistency and message in life. I'm doing that because that's what he demands. That's, that's the challenge at the end that at the end, people come up to him and say, hey, I was part of some of religious performances. He said, but I didn't know you. It starts with knowing me. And he says, and the person who knows me and then does my word, you're like a house built on a rock. The houses look the same, the house on the rock and the sand, because you never look at someone's foundations. And yet when the storm hits, we see what you're made of. And a storm is raging for us. What are we made of? Are we people built on the sand of self-preservation? Or would people built on no? I believe there's a real God, and I believe there's a real Son of God, Jesus Christ, and I believe He really came for me. And He does something really powerful here at the end. He doesn't end with just some advice for us. He ends by saying, "You'll say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will let you into the kingdom of heaven." He centers himself at the end of a message. That's a crazy thing to do. Like if I did that, so what's the point of this message? Believe in Ben Stewart. You'd be like, "This guy's nuts. Like that's crazy." And that was their response. At the end, it says they were astonished. Like, did he just Did he just say we're going to come to him in the last day and call him Lord? Like, what well, on earth? And Jesus, is like, yep, that's right. And then he left, and everyone's like, what? Well, that's nuts. And it's crazy, unless it's true. And then he lived this life that that no one else has ever been like him. That's why for ages, billions of people are keying off his life. Like, look at how he lived, and then he died. And he said, My death is going to accomplish taking all your sin and shame and your brokenness that you know is in there. It's going to bury it in the dirt. All the logs, I'm going to be nailed to. And it's going to accomplish something. And you're like, OK, maybe. But then he beat death and rose from the grave. And we're like, oh, OK, all right, maybe this guy's onto something. And we look at him and say, This message is nuts unless it's true. And if he really beat death, the thing we're most scared of, then suddenly he's got all this authority in our life to say you're beautiful in God's image and he's a father to you, but you're broken because of sin and that's truth and I know you don't want to hear that, but it's true. And yet the truth is I've made a way, I've cut a path, I've blazed a trail that you trust me And I change you from the inside out. You come to me poor in spirit, and I bless you. You come to me hungry and thirsting to be made right, and I will make you right. And then you walk humbly with me, confessing your sin, grieving over it, kneeling before me, but with a humble confidence of knowing I delight to hear you. And then as I bless you, you be a blessing to the world. Not just trying not to do harm, but you become a force for good. You do what you guys did last week at Above and Beyond, fully funding our endeavor to get the New Testament into the language of people you don't know. Fully funding our goals for four mission partners here in this city. They don't even know it's coming. Funding the possibility of expanding the walls in a place where we can grow as a church as Lord willing we enter, exit a pandemic. That you didn't wait to do good because the power of God works in us and through us. But it starts by acknowledging the Lord. The Lord, I want to build my life on you. I want to trust what you say is true because you face death for me and you beat death for me. So when you say my sin is killing me, I want to believe you. And when you say I can save you, I believe you. And look, I know some of you may go, I don't know if I believe any of that. I'm just here with my friend. They promised me lunch after this. That's fine. Just come Come back. In, in a couple weeks and keep journeying with us to learn about Jesus. No one changed history like this man. And he said he was God. That's crazy. Or it's true. And billions of people are in the wake of a gracious man like that. But if you've seen enough and known enough and say, man, I've built enough houses on sand and know I need something else. There was a rock that the builders rejected, but he became a cornerstone. And he is building a church brick by brick, men and women who trust him to make us into what we're meant to be. Do you know Him? He sows into us grace and truth that we know how to move together in a difficult day. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC Podcast.